Welcome to Australia in the 60s, a series of podcasts by Scott Brody, a Trocadero Publishing production. Information about Scott and all the books he has had published can be found at www.scottbrody.com.au. This podcast is copyright S&L Brody. The copyright owners can be contacted through www.electromedia.com.au. This is Australia in the 60s, podcast number one, Going to the Pictures. Going to the Pictures in 1960s Australia. What was it like? Well, as far as this form of entertainment went, it was the, it was the decade in which almost everything changed, forever. As the glow of television spread across the land, it seemed nothing could be the same for long. This inevitability was vividly illustrated on Saturday 4 December 1965. The scene was Sydney's grand Prince Edward Theatre, always known as the Theatre Beautiful. It first began screening films in 1924 in the silent days and for many years was home to the productions of Paramount Pictures. Late evening, the curtain fell on a repeat screening of Paramount's rather disappointing epic, War and Peace. Streamers were thrown and balloons fell from the ceiling, but it was all very half-hearted. The patrons slowly departed, leaving the house permanently dark. Not long after, demolition crews moved in to wipe all traces of this spectacular, much-loved venue off the Sydney map. The Grand Chandelier was shipped off to Brisbane where it was installed in, all of, in, of all places, a new Westfield shopping town. The PE, as it was affectionately known, was replaced by an office building of stunning mediocrity. It was a scenario to be repeated across Australia throughout the rest of the 60s and beyond. As TV secured its hold on the public imagination, there were simply not enough people wanting to see movies in such an elegant setting. In the 1960s, I was a teenager, a very enthusiastic picture-goer. I am not and never was an industry insider. I've never worked in the film business, production or exhibition. This podcast is all about a remembrance of times past. At 13, I was allowed to go to daytime sessions alone, with no parental accompaniment. I loved the big old theatres where I could immerse myself in the cinematic experience. Within two years, I was going to the Saturday evening sessions at the local picture theatre. Well, it was local-ish. You actually had to walk some distance from home to catch a tram to get there. I consumed pretty much all the big, not-so-big, and even downright obscure pictures from the mid-60s onwards. I came from a family of inveterate picture-goers, a mother and aunts who happily went to the pictures three times each week. And when she was having me, my mother's waters broke while she was at the local picture theatre. But enough about me. Let's get a bit pedantic. Was it going to the movies or going to the pictures? In the 1960s, it was going to the pictures, or possibly the flicks. The term movies was generally used in the sense that you saw a movie. The actual act of seeing that movie was known as going to the pictures. And they were usually called theatres, or picture theatres, or, to an older generation, picture houses. 
Anyone who called a picture theatre a cinema was considered to be a bit up themselves. They were probably the sort who preferred Swedish, French or Italian films, with subtitles in specialist cinemas, about which more later. So, what was it like, this going to the pictures in the 60s? Well, it was a rather different experience when compared with today. Different, but not necessarily better. For a start, people expected more for the money they paid to get in, even though quantity rarely equaled quality. And what did you get for your money? If you went to one of the big theatres in the city centre, you would see one first release film. Very occasionally you would get two. However, this was a pretty sure sign that both films were dogs. If you went to a suburban theatre or drive-in, you'd get two films. The first, most likely of dubious quality, was screened before the interval. The main feature, the big picture, was screened after the interval. Very occasionally you'd get a bonus. Two films that were genuine value for money. Such as when Dr No and From Russia With Love were re-released together after the James Bond craze really took off with Goldfinger. In a CBD theatre, part of the value-for-money package was what was a bunch of what operators like to call short subjects, or shorts. They were generally magazine-style, human-interest collections, or travelogues about places few in the audience would ever see. Most ran about 20 minutes and were overwhelmingly boring or tedious. Just occasionally there was a gem, well-produced and interesting. As the 60s progressed, theatre managements were often paid to run these shorts by a company or a government department pushing a particular barrow. Even the advertising was more interesting than the shorts, like this animated story of a group of bears running a dairy farm. In the end, it turned out to be a rather long advertisement for bear brand canned milk, but they didn't mention the product until the last few frames. Generally, CBD theatres didn't lower the tone of their programming by screening cartoons. One exception, in the 60s, was the Pink Panther. It seemed that each new James Bond film featured a Pink Panther cartoon before the interval. Suburban theatres and drive-ins did, however, screen cartoons. Usually ancient Warner Brothers, Looney Tunes efforts or MGM's classic Tom and Jerry cartoons. In most theatres, there was a trailer for the film due to open or advanced promotion for major films on their way from Hollywood. As it happens to as happens today, most trailers were masterpieces of disinformation. Film distributors followed a fairly rigid pattern when releasing their films. They usually went for the slow burn, letting a film build an audience by word of mouth. Initially it would open in a city centre theatre usually controlled by Hoyts, Grady Union or Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. A dud film would run for a week or two, then it'd be replaced. If a film attracted a healthy crowd on Saturday night, it'd be held over for another week. There were, however, a lot of dud films in the 60s. The one-week run was not unusual. Except on a few occasions, the studios and their Australian distributors were closely aligned to particular theatre chains. 20th Century Fox, Warner Brothers and United Artists all screened in Hoyt's theatres. MGM and Walt Disney films went into MGM theatres. 
Paramount, Columbia, Universal, the Rank Organisation and other British studios were all in Greater Union theatres. Hoyt's was 100% owned by 20th Century Fox. Greater Union was half owned by the Ridge family. The other half was owned by the British Rank Organisation. Greater Union also owned British Empire Films, a distributor. It specialised in the output of Rank and other British producers. The Australian picture picture theatre industry was overwhelmingly dominated by foreign interests. No wonder the Australian film industry struggled for so long to have its films exposed to the public. Even when it did begin gaining some traction in the 1960s, most screenings occurred in smaller independent suburban houses. Sydney and Melbourne had chains of suburban theatres controlled by Hoyts or Greater Union, the latter trading as the Odeon Kings circuit. MGM had a smaller number of quality theatres outside the Sydney and Melbourne CBDs. In Brisbane, Adelaide and Perth and other centres, suburban houses were most, mostly family-owned. The quality of these theatres, independent theatres, varied enormously. Once TV made its presence felt, audiences fell away and money for, money for maintenance and improvements just dried up. The apparently relaxed approach to generating revenue continued after a film closed in the CBD. A gap of anything up to six weeks followed, sometimes even longer, before it made its way into the suburban and country theatres, and then into drive-in theatres. Yes, that's right, six weeks, more than enough time for a person to forget they had ever wanted to see a film. And this was at a time when pretty much the only way of knowing what was on at the pictures was to look up the advertisements in the daily newspapers. Suburban and country theatres usually ran what were called double features or double bills. This meant a not-so-good film before the interval, a more popular one after. Films that died in CBD theatres usually found their way onto the first half of a suburban double feature. Even the most popular film rarely ran more than one week at a suburban theatre. Then, after that, most films disappeared from public view for at least five years, the minimum period before distributors would make a film available for television. Yes, five years. Before even a dud film could be seen on the small screen. And, for a particularly popular or prestigious film, the TV audience would wait a lot longer. This was because distributors loved re-releases or reissues. These were films that did well at the box office on their first release. As a re-release, they could be slotted into a theatre for a new run. Gone with the Wind was originally released in 1939. It went through numerous re-releases before hitting TV in the late 70s. Easily accessible videotape was still more than a decade away. Re-releases were one way of protecting the theatre industry's revenue. Once a film was aired on TV, it it was rarely, if ever, screened in theatres again. Despite the lack of up-to-the-minute product, many people were happy to watch old films from the 50s or earlier on TV. TV was free. Well, it was free apart from the TV licence you had to buy at the post office. All through the 1960s, TV increased its grip on the nation. Frantic theatre owners and distributors searched for ways to expand their audiences, or at least hold on to what they had. Since the 1950s, the trend for Hollywood studios was to produce bigger and better films, 
spectacular widescreen images in glowing colour, stereophonic sound, and, and starring actors who would never taint their images by appearing on TV. That was everything TV could not do or even hope to do. Seeking inspiration from across the Pacific, Australia's theatre operators adopted an idea that had worked well in the USA and Britain. The roadshow presentation. It was a curious concept, one that would really never fly in the immediacy of today's entertainment industry. However, the idea of restricting a film's availability looked pretty good in the 1960s because it was all about selling a prestige experience and, most importantly, something you'd never get on TV. Hoyts and Greater Union each chose at least one theatre in each capital city for roadshow presentations. They were better quality houses that seated 1,000 to 1,500 patrons. The programming contained no distractions such as shorts, cartoons or newsreels. Before the curtain opened, there was often an overture, an orchestral rendition of the music on the film's soundtrack. The roadshow film screened twice daily, 2pm and 7.30pm or thereabouts. There was a morning matinee at 10am on Wednesdays and Saturdays. Any seat in the theatre could be booked in advance and admission prices were at a premium above the usual CBD prices. Patrons received fancy-looking printed tickets, souvenirs of the big night out, and there were also souvenir programs with information about the films and the stars. Roadshow pictures generally had a number of common elements. Firstly, they ran for around three hours, sometimes more. This equaled prestige. A long-running film meant a film was important, serious, not to be taken lightly. They were screened in two parts, with an intermission in the middle. In some cases, it was a break that patrons would desperately need. Lawrence of Arabia, My Fair Lady, Sound of Music, El Cid, Dr Zhivago, West Side Story, 2001 A Space Odyssey and numerous others were examples of roadshow films that actually entertained. Other extended-length films concentrated on being ponderously important. A major motion picture, as the publicists liked to say when they could think of nothing else. A test of endurance for any audience in reality. Examples of these were 55 Days at Peking, Lord Jim, The Bible in the Beginning, The Greatest Story Ever Told, Grand Prix, Cleopatra and The Fall of the Roman Empire. Availability was important in roadshow presentations. Too much availability would make a film look common. Instead, it was locked off from screening anywhere else. Suburban and country theatres just had to wait. It was not unusual for a roadshow film to remain in a CBD theatre for more than a year, sometimes two years, especially in Sydney and Melbourne. It was all about creating an atmosphere as far from the deadly television as you could get. Distributors and theatre managers hoped prestige and exclusivity would attract patrons, even if many of the films put them to sleep just as effectively as TV programs. The classic example of this would have to be the bloated 1963 epic Cleopatra. It ran for a mind and bum-numbing hour, four hours, 20 minutes. The extraordinary cost of producing Cleopatra brought 20th Century Fox to the verge of financial collapse. 
Hoyts and Fox devoted a lot of money and a lot of promotional resources to dragging patrons into the roadshow presentations. They were somewhat successful, even though the world already knew it was a dog. All that really saved it was the star system of the day, the cult of celebrity. The tempestuous private life of Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton had caused numerous headlines during the filming in Rome. Fans were keen to see Burton and Taylor acting together for the first time. It was supposed to be a major selling point for Cleopatra. MGM, however, pulled off the classic spoiler. Its film, The VIPs, also starred the golden couple, but it was made after Cleopatra. MGM made good use of its powerful theatre chain to stage a global simultaneous premiere of the VIPs. This pulled the rug out from under much of Hoyt's Fox publicity, and it was a triumph for MGM getting Burton and Taylor onto the screen first, even though it wasn't a very good film. Even more restricted than the roadshow presentation was Cinerama. It had been developed in the 1950s to lure people away from TV again. Despite its technical complexity, it was really just an expensive novelty and the biggest and most spectacular of widescreen presentations. It certainly did something no TV set could. Cinerama was filmed with three linked cameras. To show it, a theatre needed three separate projection booths and a vast curved screen. The projectors had to be strictly synchronised as each played onto one-third of the screen. It was a hazardous undertaking fraught with dangers. The worst of these was the telltale gaps appearing between the images on the screen. The cost of setting up a theatre for Cinerama was vast. It was only considered viable in cities with populations of more than a million. Even so, Hoyts took the plunge at the end of the 1950s and turned its plaza theatres in Sydney and Melbourne into Cinerama theatres. Initial Cinerama productions were just glorified travelogues. By the 1960s, the novelty was waning. Hollywood studios had little enthusiasm or money for Cinerama, with the exception of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, who were prepared to use it to add prestige value and create a more thrilling experience for patrons. The last three-camera, three-projector Cinerama features appeared in 1962. Both came from the MGM studios. They were the wonderful world of the Brothers Grimm, and how the West was won. Later, these two films were transferred to single-strip film, which enabled them their presentation in non-Cinerama theatres and to recoup a bit of money for MGM. It was a hit-and-miss process. In numerous scenes, patrons were treated to obvious joins where the original three panels had been combined. After this, other films were released as Cinerama Productions, but they were actually filmed by various 70mm processes using a single camera. These included It's a Mad Mad, Mad Mad World, Khartoum, Grand Prix and 2001 A Space Odyssey. The Hoyts Plaza Theatres went back to operating a Sydney single projection system. When the Sydney Theatre closed in the late 1970s, it still had the old Cinerama side projection booths in place, long since disused and dusty. Other, th other CBD theatres had more rational programming policies. Most offered four sessions daily, Monday to Saturday. 
Usually they began at 10.30am, 1.30pm, 4.30pm and 7.30pm or thereabouts. They were known as the morning, afternoon, intermediate and evening session. Admission prices increased as the day went on, with evening picturegoers paying the most. Unlike today, once you were in the theatre you could actually stay as long as you wanted, at least until the evening session when the usherettes would be likely to throw you out if there was a big crowd expected. It was not uncommon for patrons to sit through two or three screenings of a film if they really liked it, and they would have had to. It was not unusual for a patron to come in halfway through a film, then stay to see the first half in the, in the next session. And you may have noticed I haven't mentioned Sundays yet. That's because there were no Sunday screenings, not in the capital city CBD and suburbs at least, not until very late in the decade. Country towns and holiday areas did, though, permit Sunday screenings, but residents of the capital cities were spared this challenge to their morality. As the 60s progressed, many, many sessions played to near-empty houses. The weekday afternoon and intermediate sessions were probably the least profitable for theatre operators. This meant a struggle to cover everyday running costs. A large 2,000-seat theatre with lower stalls and upper dress circle needed at least two ushers. The candy bar required at least one attendant. Someone had to be in the ticket box to take the patron's money and at least one projectionist was needed full-time. And there were also needed was a manager and a su- or a supervisor to be on hand to make sure it all worked properly. Then there were significant cleaning costs, and all those lights and signs and air conditioning enthusiastically chewing up electricity. It was no wonder multiplexes were the way forward by the late 1960s. In CBD theatres, the doors were almost always staffed by women. They had decades before been given the title of usherettes. This was a diminutive, diminutive version of the usher title applied to, the, to males if they did the job. Sexism was still alive and well throughout the 60s. When the 60s began, patrons always expected usherettes to show them to their seats, especially in a darkened theatre after the program had started, leading the way to the correct row with her torch guiding your steps. By the end of the 60s, usherettes, or probably the single usherette on duty, checked your ticket and told you to sit anywhere, unless it was a session with pre-booked tickets. Patrons were a bit shocked and bewildered the first time they were told to sit anywhere. They were so used to being seated at the whim of an usherette. But they soon overcame this trauma and quickly became accustomed to sitting anywhere they wanted in the vast auditorium. They usually had plenty of choice. Being an usherette carried with it an element of glamour. There was no shortage of girls and young women pursuing jobs as usherettes. You were in the entertainment business and you got to sit, got to see the pictures all day while you sat there presiding over a sparsely filled auditorium, seeing the fa- same film over and over and over again. It soon became tedious, if not boring. Many usherettes went on to more fulfilling, jo- fulfilling jobs. My film-loving mother was an usherette at Brisbane's Metro. Her sister was an usherette at the Majestic, later rebuilt as the Odeon, also in Brisbane. Both went on to much more fulfilling jobs. Where you sat also influenced the admission price. Larger CBD theatres, those with 1,500 or more seats, were divided into four zones. 
Downstairs were the front and back stalls, upstairs in the balcony were the dress circle and lounge. Prices ran from the front stall's cheapest to the lounge most expensive. Paying more meant a more comfortable seat and the best view of the screen. Seats in the stalls were firm and upright. Those in the lounge were, as the name suggests, lounge chairs or something close to it. Amazingly, most people stayed in the seats they'd paid for, although there was a little bit of sneaking into the better seats once the lights went down. Eventually, the lower level seats were combined under the same price and only the dress circle and lounge had differing prices. CBD theatres and the better quality suburbans gave patrons the opportunity to book seats in advance by telephone or by calling at the theatre. You could even write to the theatre and buy your tickets if you wanted to. Sometimes there was a separate bookings counter in the foyer where the box plan, the layout of the theatre's seating, was on display. More usually the box plan was found at the ticket box. The larger, older-style theatres with stalls and dress circles usually restricted bookings to the upper level. You went to the theatre in advance, chose your seats and, was, and were given a printed ticket with the, ticket with the seat number on it. Downstairs, seats were sold on a first-come, first-served basis before the session. For a popular film on Saturday night, this meant queuing for up to 30 minutes, sometimes longer before you reached the ticket booth. In Sydney and Melbourne, patrons could book seats at a number of booking agencies. These included David Jones and Mitchells in Sydney, Brashes and Meyer in Melbourne. The bulk of 1960s films were made for an adult market. The 14-year-old moviegoer as the arbiter of film taste was still a decade away. Most Hollywood films and pretty much all British and European productions were created with adults in mind. With few exceptions, teenagers and young adults saw and enjoyed the same films as their parents. However, there were a few films that clicked with this market. At the head of them all was 1967's To Sir With Love. It combined the lot. Youth revolution, fashion, changing attitudes, misunderstanding and race relations. Everything a teenager would want. The small American international studio made a string of California beach pictures that worked well, worked well in Australia. They included Beach Party, Bikini Beach and Beach Blanket Bingo. Bye Bye Birdie also worked, worked well for young adults, but it worked well for their parents as well, depicting as it did a thinly disguised version of the Elvis story. There were also blatantly exploitationist films cashing in on trends of the moment such as Ride the Wild Surf, subject matter fairly obvious, Redline 7000, about motor racing in the southern USA. Most were cheaply made, but generated good profits for producers and theatre owners. And, of course, the biggie was the James Bond craze. The first two, Dr No and From Russia With Love, did respectable business. Then, starting with Goldfinger, it all went wild. Next, theatres were packing in young and old patrons for Thunderball. Then you had You Only Live Twice and On Her Majesty's Secret Service. In the 60s, the James Bond craze gave the traditional picture theatres a lot to live for. Saturday matinees were pretty staple fare for suburban and country theatres. They had programmes that appealed to children and were acceptable to their parents. 
CBD theatres only went out of their way to cater for children during school holidays. Even then, children's films would be confined to the large old theatres, those that could pack in a maximum audience for the short holiday period. 60s children's film were mostly cheapies, cobbled together with cheaply made animation mostly. The Disney output was sometimes an exception to this, Mary Poppins being a classic example. After TV arrived, most picture theatres lived or died on their Saturday night audience. If you could not pull a full or near full house on Saturday night, then you just would not survive. Wednesday and Friday were the other nights when a reasonable crowd might turn up. For the rest of the week, it was not uncommon for half a dozen patrons to see the main film, sometimes in a theatre that could seat thousands of people. In the 1960s, the Saturday night pictures brought some life to CBD streets, for a short time at least. Theatres mostly finished the evening session between 10.30 and 11pm. If they had full houses, it would take some time for them to empty out into the streets. There, patrons were greeted by vendors selling early editions of the Sunday newspapers. Crowds from the various theatres intermingled for a brief period before they caught their trams or buses or trains or took their cars for the drive home. A few cosmopolitan types found the handful of coffee shops available, the ones that catered for the after-picture crowd. But even these venues were usually shuttered and dark well before midnight. Suburban and country theatres just fell like dominoes as the 60s progressed. Most of them had pretty, pretty poor quality seating. They lacked either heating or air conditioning. On a winter's night, people concluded that staying home watching TV in comfort was preferable to huddling in multiple layers of clothing with a blanket on the legs in a draughty barn of a theatre that had seen better days. Even the lure of seeing a movie that was less than five years old didn't work. Another major consideration was the cost of TV sets. All were Australian-made in the 60s, and they were inordinately expensive. A very, a very ordinary and unreliable 23-inch black-and-white set cost the equivalent of $5,000 in today's money. Once a household bought one, probably on higher purchase finance, that was the end of the weekly visit to the pictures. Going to the pictures be- for these people became something of a special occasion only, maybe once or twice a year. In the struggle to stay open, many suburban and country theatre owners ceased nightly screenings. Before long, they were reduced to Wednesday, Friday and Saturday, then just Friday and Saturday. Cost of keeping these large buildings going just became too much. One by one, they'd announced their closing. Sometimes there was a bit of a wake after the last film was screened, but usually patrons just went home and the theatre went dark forever. The rats and spiders that had been kept at bay for years were given free reign. There were always buyers for old theatres, Most of them were demolished and the sites redeveloped. Corner sites on main roads were prime targets for the numerous oil companies expanding their presence across the country. Most commonly, blocks of shops, flats or home units took their place. The glowing lights that had once welcomed patrons in the night were extinguished forever. Crowds of people on suburban streets at night became a rare event. Not all the theatres were demolished, though. Some became skating rinks or reception lounges. Others were turned to furniture retailing. 
electrical goods or carpets. Often the building just remained there, unloved, falling apart from neglect, particularly in country areas. A handful of canny theatre owners did, however, keep going. They were the ones with good locations and a better standard of theatre and offered be- that offered better quality programming. As their competitors fell by the wayside, there was a more viable market for those that remained. One venue that did prosper and expand in the 60s was the drive-in theatre. Imported from the USA in the early 50s, drive-ins became a feature of the Australian picture-going scene. Most were built on the outskirts of a city or town. Originally, they were promoted as a place for families. There were playgrounds and super-cheap admission prices for children. But despite this, parents regularly concealed children under blankets in the rear footwell of the car to avoid paying. Some adults even resorted to hiding in the boot of the car for the same reason. As the 60s progressed, the drive-in became the haunt of teenagers and young adults. More and more were gaining access to cars, either their own or a borrowed family vehicle. Drive-ins became a favourite place for young people to get together, away from the gaze of parents at a time when there were few alternatives. Censorship was a major fact of life in 60s Australia. What we were allowed to see at the pictures was strictly controlled and it was one of the most onerous regimes of censorship in the world. The Commonwealth Film Censorship Board was all-powerful. It took the role of protecting Australians from all the moral influences, filth, as it was commonly known. Every film imported for exhibition was reviewed by the board, which gave it a rating. It also cut out a lot of scenes to make the film acceptable at least acceptable to sensitive Australian audiences. As controller of imports, the Commonwealth Government had the role of official film censor. State governments, however, also had the constitutional right to impose censorship. Most likely this took the form of an outright ban on a film being screened in that state. The Commonwealth film censors were nothing if not diligent pursuers of anything they considered would overexcite the average Australian. They hacked into films with relish, carving out great swathes of a story often making it unintelligible. The sexual revolution sweeping Europe and the Americas just made them more determined. Nudity and adult themes were not to be tolerated. In the 60s there was no R classification. Instead there were three classifications. For general exhibition, or G as it was usually known, not suitable for children, or A, and, not, and suitable only for adults, SOA or AO, or sometimes just adults only. There was no restriction on who could see these films, including the adults-only classification. The only proviso was that theatres could not offer children's prices for a film classified as SOA. If they were prepared to pay, parents could take their children to see SOA films without restriction. Which brings us to the spiritual home of the SOA film the Continental Cinema. Every major city had at least one cinema showing what would today be called art films. They came from Europe, mostly Scandinavia, France and Italy. Sometimes they originated behind the Iron Curtain. There was also a niche interest in films by Indian creators. Continental theatres had evocative names such as Lido, Carlton, Roma, Gala, Savoy... 
and they were usually seating they usually seated no more than 250 people many had been former newsreel theaters a form of entertainment that had died after the tv news was introduced to some in the community continental cinemas were dens of filth homes to all forms of perversion and other rudeness such a thing could never be a part of normal Australian life. Continental films, however, catered for a growing audience, those who were looking for innovative and imaginative productions, particularly those that were dramatically different from the output of the Hollywood studios. Their, their appeal was somewhat restricted because they, had, because they screened the films in their original language with subtitles. The average Australian picture girl found subtitles a bit hard to cope with. Along with the quality films came quite a bit of exploitation as dross from Europe. Newspaper adverts that played up the sex aspect of these productions were triumphs of misleading promotion. A very few Greek films made it into the continental cinema circuit. Even so, this didn't really matter because there was a ready market for Greek films among the immigrant population. Most capital cities had at least one cinema devoted solely to screening productions from Greece. Before television, Australia relied on newspapers, radio and newsreels for their news. Australia had two weekly cinema newsreels. Cinesound featured a kangaroo in its opening scene and screened in Greater Union theatres. Fox Movie Tone had a, a group of laughing kookaburras and was shown in Hoyt's theatres. Independent suburban and country theatres often had both screened. TV dealt a swift death blow to these newsreels. So in the, nine, in the early 60s, Cinesound and Movie Tone stopped delivering up-to-the-minute news and instead concentrated on more lightweight, non-urgent items in a magazine style. This lasted right through the 60s. Many country theatres were spared the effects of television because of its slow expansion beyond the capital cities. It came to Sydney and Melbourne in 56, Adelaide and Brisbane in 59, and then after that the regional spread was slow and cautious right through the 60s. A classic example, in my own experience, were the Star Theatre and Tropicare Drive-In in Mount Isa. TV didn't arrive in the western Queensland mining town until 1971. Every night of the week, the Star Theatre screened to an almost full house. Saturday night, it was completely packed out. The start of the program would even be postponed until everyone queuing for tickets had been seated. Similarly, the drive-in was full of cars most nights of the week, despite a major problem with the 7pm start. In western Queensland, the sun did not disappear for at least another 30 minutes in summer. Patrons could hear but not see what was on the screen until the fierce sun dropped below the horizon. And then there is one aspect of theatre going today that is in sharp contrast with the 60s. A crowded theatre in the 60s would be enveloped in a cloud of smoke. Patrons were able to puff away on cigarettes all through the show. The butts ended up on the theatre floor along with the discarded confectionery packets and drink containers. Although change began around 1965, it would be a long and slow process. In the middle of the 60s, the first bans on smoking in theatres were introduced. This was not government legislation, but a decision of theatre managements. 
My own father was rather indignant when he found out he couldn't smoke in Brisbane's Odeon Theatre when we went to see the Ipcress file in 1965. It was an economic policy. Theatres were modernised in in these years and their floors were carpeted at considerable expense. The last thing an operator wanted was carpets with covered in burn marks. Older auditoriums, however, remained remained havens for smokers for many years, largely because they had bare wooden floors everywhere other than in the aisles. Refreshments and special treats were were always a part of the picture-going experiences. CBD theatres had a candy bar. Suburban and country theatres usually had a milk bar adjacent to them, often owned by the family who owned the theatre. CBD theatres offered watered-down cordial drinks and chocolate-topped ice cream cones. Drinks in the suburbs and country were usually bottles of the local carbonated soft drink. Primary favourites with picture-goers everywhere were the various Sweet Acres products. Minties, Fantails, Jaffas, Milk Bottles and others. Another favourite was the McRobertson's Columbines. They came in long, thin boxes with an opening down the side so you could see how many were left. Such treats could only be bought in milk bars in the 60s. They were not available in supermarkets. For anyone wanting to impress on a date, there were box chocolates. Cadbury Roses and Black Magic, Nestle's Winning Post and McRobertson's Old Gold led the game, while Red Tulip was steadily grabbing market share. And it was not just the candy bar in the foyer that tempted patrons. In CBD theatres, you always knew when the first half of the program was about to end. In the darkness below the screen in front of the stage, ghostly figures in white jackets would appear. When the lights came up, they were revealed as the Trey Boys. And they were mostly, almost exclusively boys in the 1960s. They carried large flat trays that sat horizontally against their waists and were held in place and balanced by a large strap around the neck. On the trays were selections of ice creams and confectionery. Even in the 60s, this tray boys concept was dying out. There were just not enough patrons to make it a paying proposition except on Saturday nights. Better to have a candy bar staffed by one or two people who could sell at any time, not just in a 10 to 20 minute window four four times each day. Food offerings in drive-ins were a bit more elaborate. Most promoted the concept of arrive early and dine. The big night out, dinner and a show. Generally the Gates and Cafe opened 90 minutes before the program started. In the 60s, you could get a steak and veg dinner and a range of desserts. It wasn't exactly top-notch cuisine, but it suited most patrons. Interval came at the end of the first movie. As the credits rolled, there was a frantic rush to the cafe. A hard-pressed team of counter-staff battled to serve everyone in a short time. This labour-intensive food preparation required a large number of staff. Patrons jostled frantically to reach the counter. Queuing systems were something for the future. The crush was made worse by those who had been served battling to escape. Little wonder that by the 70s most drive-ins were converted to self-service with ready-made food. Another quaint tradition that died out in the 60s was the playing of the national anthem. In that decade that meant God save the Queen. Almost all theatres played it at the beginning of the first half of the program. Some followed the British tradition, playing it at the end of the main film. 
More out of habit than respect or anything else, the audience would struggle to its feet. So ingrained was the, hab- the standing up habit that it, became, it came as a surprise when anyone failed to comply. The monarchy wasn't terribly popular in 60s Australia, as shown by the poor crowds who turned out to see the Queen on the 63 royal visit. Some theatres had a film accompanying the anthem, usually the Queen on horseback inspecting troops. Hoyts and Grady Union just had the music, first verse only. The Hoyts anthem featured a long introductory drum roll, which gave everyone a chance to be on their feet when the anthem proper began. Then, one day, theatres just ceased playing it, sometime around the mid-60s. Nobody really noticed, nobody complained, and there was no outrage. The Queen just disappeared. Despite losing a large portion of their customers, theatre owners didn't give up. Most recognised they could not continue to get away with shabby, run-down theatres with moth-eaten seats and the occasional rat scuttling across the stage at interval. They also realised the day of the grand 2,500-seat auditorium had passed. Grady Union led the way with new and attractive theatres. In Brisbane they opened the all-new Cinema George. In Sydney it was the Paramount. In Melbourne, the Bercy. Each featured a single-level auditorium with no dress circle. They were carpeted and fitted with comfortable chairs. There was a large and impressive wraparound screen and it had full stereophonic sound. In Melbourne, the growing village chain was also steadily opening new attractive cinemas, usually with at least two auditoriums in the same building. MGM soldiered on with its chain of older theatres. The elegant Art Deco metros in Brisbane and Adelaide were stars of the group. Both were built from the ground up in the 1930s. Architects were sent from the USA to create them. Little expense was spared in decoration, fittings and seating but by the late 1960s they were starting to look a bit shabby. Reflecting the steady demise of the MGM studios in Hollywood, MGM as a theatre owner in Australia would see out the 60s, but only just. While Hoyts was slower to upgrade, it did open the impressive Cinema Centre in Melbourne in 1969. This was a multiplex with three houses, all of them large by today's standards. There was also a restaurant and bar and a ten-storey office block above. At the end of the 60s, the Hoyt Cinema Centre pointed the way to the future. The 70s would see the era of the multiplex begin in earnest. Many fine old theatres would be swept away in the rush for modernity and efficiency. And that's how going to the pictures was in the 1960s. It wasn't better or worse than today, but it was different. It was a little bit more innocent and a bit less sophisticated, probably even naive by today's standards. But lost forever is the sensation of entering a vast Gothic auditorium with a spectacular chandelier, or taking your seat under a canopy of twinkling lights, and having the big picture take you somewhere exotic for an hour or two. Using the pseudonym Simon Brand, Scott wrote the book Picture Palaces and Flea Pits, which was published by Dreamweaver Books.